section from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Ah, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, it is so precious to us that you are the God who speaks. And we ask that through your word, by your spirit, you will speak to us this day. Amen. Uh, this passage is most often taken as a model of how to pray. Thanksgiving for the young church in Colossae. Uh, for where the young church in Colossae has got to, followed by intercession for where Paul wants them to go on to. But for me, it also throws up three big questions, which I think can be asked of any church, but I'll presume and I'll take the liberty of asking them of Kennet Valley Free Church this day. And they're centered around words that are important both in the Bible and our society. Now, I can only touch upon these. They are such broad and big themes. I can only touch upon them today. I'll ask uh, the questions. I'll make a few observations, and I will leave them with you to think through anything that you feel is of real value. But the first question is this. Is this a church that has real confidence in the gospel? And the reason I ask this is because direct statements about the gospel and allusions to it underpin this passage from beginning to end. All Paul's points, both in his thanksgiving and in his intercession, flow from the gospel. And this displays his utter confidence in the good news of Jesus. I'm going to draw just three aspects of the gospel from the ver verses 3 to 9. And the first is that we learn that the gospel is the word of the truth. 
uh, from the time of Adam and Eve, of course, the issue of truth, learning, knowing, speaking, living the truth has been troublesome for us human beings. When Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, everyone on the side of truth listens to me, the cynical old self-server replied, anybody want to quote him? What is truth? Go on, go on, sock it to me. What is truth? But truth in our times has become a very slippery word indeed. Some say we live in a post-truth era. A good friend of mine said only this last week, there's no such thing as truth. At least, not as I knew it in my youth. And truth, for many today, is more what you feel. So it is what you believe that is true, rather than you believe what is true. And the expectation is that others will affirm your truth, accept it and applaud it, even if they don't agree. Evidence and counter-arguments are not taken into consideration. All you have to cry now these days when you don't like something is, say, fake news. And an almost instant response in what is supposed to be a more tolerant society is, believe it, but don't say it. That's what John Barnes said to certain Liverpool supporters who don't support uh, homosexual marriage. You can believe it, but just don't say it. Close down the opposition and label those who hold those views bigots. End of story. No need to enter into dialogue. Uh, those of you on Twitter know how many letters you've got, don't you? Is it 280? There you are. That's all you need. You express it there. That comes back another 280. That's all you need in terms of dialogue. So to presume to know what is really true then in our society becomes unacceptable arrogance. And that causes issues for uh, all worldviews, whether they're religious or not. It causes problems because each worldview makes its own truth claims. They're different, and more often than not, they disagree completely with one another. But they make those claims. But despite this assertion of personal truth, the, the demand to know what is true is there all over the place. Ukrainians don't want to make their own truth. They want to know what truly happened in Bucha, in Mariupol. And they want the world to know. In murder cases, relatives want to know what did happen to their loved ones. Who did it? Why? And where their remains are? And it's a constant theme of television detective series, isn't it? What did happen the night her daughter was stopped by the police car on the way home? That sort of thing. In one recent advert, a, 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 a woman is asked, do you really want to know the truth? Yes, she screams. Voice overcomes. Can the truth Set them free. Recognize that? 
Interesting, isn't it? But for all this personal truth then, for all this refusal of evidence, we humans crave objective truth backed up by facts. So what are we to do as Christians? The passage declares that the gospel is the word of the truth, God's revealed truth in and through Jesus Christ. It is not your personal truth. And as a believer, you are commissioned to share it. So don't stay silent. Simply because the spirit of the age says don't. Take courage. And as the opportunity affords, say it. Gently, with love. Say it as persuasively as you can, but without argument and animosity. Yes, there is content. There will be claims within the gospel. There are events to narrate. There is evidence to be presented. But keep two things in mind. First is this. The truth in the Bible is usually tied to a person. In the Old Testament, truth, more often than not, is about God being trustworthy, reliable, faithful, one you can trust yourself to. And in the New Testament, Jesus claims to be the truth, to tell the truth, to reveal the truth, God's truth. So let your conversation be about Jesus, what he did, what he claimed. Listen carefully and frame as, as much as you can in the form of a question. Years ago, I heard the story of a slob of a teenager who hated every time his parents went to church and there was a guest speaker because he knew what was going to happen. They'd bring the guest speaker home, feed him, then lock him in a room with their teenager because he was going to convert him. And one time, the guest speaker was a guy called Roger Forster. And Roger Forster was fed and locked in. And he sat there and he talked about the GGs. He talked about football. He talked about snooker. He talked about everything. And then, just as it was drawing to a close, he just said this. If there really is a God, what difference will it make? Notice, ask the question. That's all he said. And that question beetled around in that young man's head, so much so that at one point, as he was walking down the high street, he shouted out, all right, God, if you're there, show me. And he went down on his knees and he was converted on the high street. If you know the name Clive Calver, that's how Clive Calver became a believer in Jesus Christ, a question asked. Right, so the gospel is the word of the truth. Your responsibility then is to declare, to share this truth. That's your part. That's your part. If the person you share it with rejects what you say, they bear the responsibility. If he or she becomes a follower of Jesus, ah, now, there you have the secret, private work of the Spirit. As Jesus teaches, believers are Spirit-born. Spirit-born. So the gospel then is the word of truth. The second we learn is that the gospel is the word of grace, the grace of God. Through hearing the truth in the gospel, you come to know the grace of God in truth. That's what this translation says. You get to know the true character and nature of God. Now grace is a huge word. 
In the Hebrew translation of the New Testament, I believe, grace is always translated by that wonderful Old Testament word, hesed. Hesed. My word. That, that, that is a word which encompasses expressions such as loving kindness, faithful love, enduring love, covenant love, mercy, generosity, favor. Can you see how broad this word is? But the facet of God's grace that Paul brings out most clearly in verses 12 and 13 is that it is God who makes the first move, not us. Take a look at those verses, 12 and 13. Consider how Paul celebrates this, that God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Notice, God has qualified us. We have not qualified ourselves. Then he goes on. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness. You have not delivered yourself from that realm of ignorance of God and his love. He has delivered you. And then he finishes, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You have not got yourself into the kingdom. God has transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. So you see, it is not we who make the change in the dynamic of our relationship with God. No, it is God who does that. Now that comes out very clearly, doesn't it, in some of Jesus' parables. You know the story of the lost coin? The lost sheep? It comes out in his behavior on earth. This is the Jesus who claims to be doing God's work here. And he outraged the good religious people by going to the dregs of society, dining with them. And that's the biggest way you can approve of somebody is sit down at their table. And he even then declared that they are saved. Your, safe has, your faith has saved you. Go in peace, he said to them. Now look, all religions recognize that the relationship between God and human beings needs something to put, done to put it right and to keep it right. Their answers are all different, but they basically amount to this. You earn the deity's goodwill by your own efforts. It's a DIY job. Do it yourself. Prove to whatever God they are pointing you to that you are good enough. Christianity stands alone in asserting that it is impossible to do this. It is impossible to save ourselves. Christianity is the only religion that says you need a savior. And in his love, God takes that initiative and gives us that savior, Jesus, who through his death on the cross that we've been celebrating so beautifully this morning, who through his death on the cross releases those who believe from their guilt before God. Isn't it amazing that all offenses of unbelief, all those years of refusing to acknowledge that there is a God, or if there is a God, he's not the Christian God, all those times of sending God to Coventry, ignoring him, not wanting anything to do with him, all those offenses, plus all those then behaviors, thoughts, words, that go against everything that God is and everything that God declares is good, that all those things are forgiven. And the believer, the believer is fully accepted into God's family. 
Here is God's grace. Here's his loving kindness, his faithful love. Here is his unmerited, unlimited generosity in giving the undeserving what they do not deserve and doing for the unable what they cannot do for themselves. Consider the grace of God, the word of the truth, the word of the grace of God. Thirdly, the word of hope. Paul is fond of the words faith, hope, and love. That usually in that order. But here he changes the order. And he makes an, a, an amazing claim. He says that it is the hope expressed in the gospel that produces the faith and love in this young church. It is a hope, he says, that is laid up for believers in heaven. If you go to Peter's first letter, he says that it is our inheritance reserved in heaven. Who does the laying up and the reserving? It's obviously it's God. It's God who guarantees that hope. He makes it a certain future. Eternal life in all its perfection and beauty. If you were here yesterday and listened to Graham, the way he, he went on through about life beyond. It's absolutely wonderful. That, he says, is what produces this faith and love in this church. It flows from that future hope. And Paul, Paul declares that that's what you see going on all over the world, wherever the gospel is proclaimed. The gospel has this, this living, fruit-producing capacity. There's a life force in the good news of Jesus Christ, in the truth, in the grace and the hope of God. And that hope crosses all borders of nationality, culture, gender, education, intelligence, and social background. Elsewhere, Paul says, it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. So the question was, does this church have confidence in the gospel? The gospel of truth, the gospel of grace, the gospel of hope. Is this something the world needs? Question two. Sorry, what time do we finish? <laughs> I only have 14 subheadings, so don't worry. Is this a church whose hallmark is love? I find it very interesting that what Epaphras makes special mention of in his report to Paul about this young church is not how strong their faith is or how deep their knowledge, their understanding, their experience of the gifts of the Spirit, their holiness of life. No, no, not that, but their love. The beginning, he says, their love for all the saints. Isn't that a startling thing to say? Love for, in this young church, love for all the saints. No one, it would seem, is missing out on, on finding practical care, support, help, and encouragement somewhere in that fellowship. But at the end, he speaks of their love in the spirit. Love, then, is a fruit Paul is saying here, both of the hope laid up in heaven and also of the work of the Spirit. Through the gospel comes the promise of the Holy Spirit to be in and to work in believers. And so love is the first fruit of the Holy Spirit. And this is a standout feature of the church Epaphras probably helped us found. And he underlines it. Do you see that little phrase again? In the Spirit. And this is important. 
You see, this church hasn't suddenly got everybody having lots of fuzzy, warm feelings for everybody in the church. Perhaps what Epaphras sees is the other fruits of the Spirit growing in this church. Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, acceptance of people, valuing of people. And those things are replacing, in a remarkably obvious way, all those attitudes and behaviors which can ruin relationships. Anger, lying, untrustworthiness, gossip, cruelty, and so on. The works of the flesh that Paul catalogues in Galatians. Now, of course, this is all of a piece with what Paul said in his great chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. But go back further to Jesus' teaching, challenging teaching. Not only does he quote the two love commandments from the Old Testament, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Not only does he quote that, but he adds his own love commands. Love each other as I have loved you. Now, that is some demand, isn't it? And we know Jesus is talking about truly sacrificial love. The love that goes even beyond going the extra mile. And when you add these words of his, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you add that, adds an enormous weight to love being the hallmark of any professing Christian congregation. Jesus gives those outside the church the litmus test of any group of his followers. And love is to be the distinguishing mark. You see, the church is where you practice loving. Have you ever wondered why it is? that God put so many awkward people in Christian churches. Don't look around, it could be you. Why are they there? Because they're a challenge to your ability to love. You practice loving within the church so that when you go out there, do you remember what else Jesus said about love? Out there you are to love your enemies. Practice in church. Live it out there. I read just recently of a, a young Muslim man in Iran who was having problems in his life, and he met a Christian who invited him to one of their meetings. And the reason that young man gave for becoming a follower of Jesus, these are his own words. He said, I have never seen such love. Don't underestimate the power of love. Love in the spirit. Now, in the church the size of KVFC, you can't know everyone well, can you? You may be good at recognizing faces. That's my strength these days. I recognize faces. I'm not so good at remembering names. So do forgive me if I ignore you and politely wave at you. But you see, if you don't recognize them, you can at least introduce yourself, can't you? 
Now, in a church this size, you're more likely to have a, a smaller circle of friends that you get to know well, and one or two you find you can confide in deeply. But at whatever level you get to know other members of this church and newcomers, because look, you are not establishing a lovey-dovey group, a club. You are establishing a family that is open, that is open to new members of the family. So you, you, whatever level you get to know other members of the church and newcomers, value them as those for whom Jesus died. And be prepared to give of yourself in whatever way you can to help, support, and encourage them. The letter of James has a lot to say about the practical love that should evidence itself in a Christian fellowship. Think about this. I'm sure you know these words. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. Now that doesn't happen these days, does it? If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, very holy, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? What good is it? How does this church do then? This gospel-confident church, does it pass the litmus test of love? Question three. Is this a church where people's lives are being transformed? One of the hymns, the songs that were so beloved of Billy Graham's uh, missions to England was, just as I am, without one plea, I come to thee. Yes, come to Jesus as you are, but don't expect to say that way. Be prepared for transformation, ongoing transformation. We're into verses 9 to 14 now, and here is Paul praying for the power of the gospel to be evidenced in changed lives. Lives, that, that phrase there, are worthy of the Lord. And he talks about knowledge, both of God and his will, wisdom, understanding, endurance, patience and joy, bearing fruit in every good work. Well, there's a list for you, isn't it? Do a bit of thinking about that. In Romans 12, Paul urges believers to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Do you ever think of it that way? Before you became a believer, did you ever think that I am a living sacrifice? What I do with my body, where I take it, how I use it, is important to God and should be offered to him as a holy offering. But he then goes on to encourage them to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I think this is pretty much what he's saying here in our passage. First, the believer's bodily life, physical life, has to undergo a transformation, their attitude to that. And secondly, their mental lives, their way that they think. And he gives two very important ways of helping this. The scriptures and the spirit. Jim Packer said that a Christian's blood should be bibline. Flowing with the word of truth. With both those happening, with the work of the spirit, Christian living will be distinctive. Worthy of Jesus. Here's another phrase Paul gives us. Fully pleasing to him. 
What's that going to be like? Back to Romans chapter 8. And we learn that what God wants for us is to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Becoming more like Jesus than is shorthand for what, G what Paul is saying here. As you know this, as you set it as your aim to do your part in this transformation, by his Holy Spirit, God and his word does his part. This is the good work that God has begun in you, that Paul talks about in Philippians 1, that he will bring to completion on the day of Christ. That's when this process of transformation that Paul is praying for will be finished. First time I read these verses in 1 John 3, 2, I, I was really struck by them. They've stayed with me ever since. Here they are. Beloved, we are God's children now. There's the gospel at work in the now. We are God's children now. And what we will be, where it's going to take us, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. When Jesus returns, we shall see him. And the only reason we shall be able to be in his presence and see him is because the process of being conformed to his likeness has come to completion. Isn't that an amazing prospect? Can you imagine yourself perfect? Perhaps I'm the only one here. Isn't it something? Isn't it challenging? That's what God is going to do. If you have got any conception of what Jesus Christ is like, that wonderful, beautiful, transfixing character, personality, everything about him, and what God is saying, one day you will be like him, you'll be just, I'll be the same as I am, I'll look like I am, but I will be like Christ in character, in personality. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. This is what is held out in the gospel. This is what else is held out in the gospel. Are you really looking to see that change in yourself? Are you aware of that you are in this process and that you are doing all you can to go with God in moving that process on and encouraging it in others in the church? So there are the three big questions. Is this a church that has real confidence in the gospel? Is this a church whose hallmark is love? Is this a church where people's lives are being transformed in the great hope that one day they will be like Jesus? Now, if you're hearing this for the first time, if much of what I've said is quite foreign to you, the very least I would ask of you is that you explore it further. There are probably literature in this church. There, there are people around, there are ministers that you can speak to, elders. The very least I would ask of you then is to explore it further. Don't let this inadequate skin prevent you from coming to a good understanding of what God has in store for you in Jesus. Because 
If it is really as good as I am making out, it's folly to ignore it. And dangerous to reject it. Have you heard of the black sheep syndrome? My osteopath told me this. The thing about the black sheep syndrome is it shows you there really is something different. And that's what I think Christianity is. It stands out like the black sheep as the one faith that offers something completely different. Don't ignore it. If you're hearing this for the umpteenth time and you're saying, yes, 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 Dave, got all this, the very least I would ask of you is that you sit down this afternoon and you seriously explore your own answers to those three questions. And then you ask yourself, what is my part in making these things true in the life of this church? And then say to yourself, I am prepared to make changes. The gospel the good news of Jesus is the truth of God. It reveals the grace of God. It brings hope. It brings God's Holy Spirit to work within you, causing lives to be transformed in love and Christ-likeness. What a gift. What a treasure. Don't keep it to yourself. 